Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I found out because a friend of mine that's at J.P. Morgan called me and left me a voicemail while I was on other calls that morning. On the morning of Thursday, the 9th of March, news that something was going wrong with Silicon Valley Bank started to trickle through the U.S. investment community. Within five minutes of receiving that call, our entire firm dropped everything we were doing and started pinging the entire portfolio to urgently move cash out as fast as possible. For Josh Chapman, a managing partner at Convoy Partners, a venture capital firm, speed became everything. My background was on the trading floor at Morgan Stanley in New York, and it kind of sparked a few signals in me of there's something very seriously wrong. This is not a scare. This is actually something structurally wrong with Silicon Valley Bank. So on Thursday, my colleague was doing some maintenance with the bank account, and he discovered he couldn't get into the account. Over in the offices of Simplifiber, an eco-fashion startup in North Carolina, company founder Maria Incha Orang was also having problems. He said, Maria, can you try and get into the account from your computer? And I couldn't. And the site just said, it's closed, it's shut down for now. It became clear this was not just a technical glitch. SVB was facing a run. On Friday, as things were getting worse, Maria tried to move the money, but she couldn't. I mean, it was just kind of like watching a car crash in slow motion and it getting really like a lot worse by the minute. All of Simplifiber's funds, millions of dollars, were with SVB. Over the weekend, venture capitalists and startups were frantically trying to work out how to keep their businesses afloat with no access to their money. I was picking up the phone and texting frivolously, you know, two-minute calls, 60-second calls, nonstop, for really the entirety of the weekend as we were problem-solving this, to do everything we could to prepare for the worst, hoping that the government would step in. Then, on Sunday the news came that the US authorities were stepping in to cover deposits for everybody with accounts. I mean, we were so relieved about that. We called each other and everybody was sending like happy messages. SVB may be no more, but many lessons from its demise will stick. We've learned to remember that we can't take anything for granted, even something that seems as solid as a bank. You know, I don't think anyone expected Silicon Valley Bank to collapse like this or as quickly as it did. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. 
And in today's show, what went wrong at Silicon Valley Bank? First, we'll explore how the crisis unfolded and how panic spread across the globe. Then we'll hear one diagnosis of a problem at SVB. They were behaving like financial boobs. They just did not know how to competently run a bank. Finally, we'll speak to former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who explains the Fed's response to the bank's collapse. Life is about choices, and policy makers have to weigh the adverse consequences of different choices and choose the least bad one. Tom, Mike, hello. Hey, Alice. Hi, Alice. So I imagine that the largest US bank failure since the global financial crisis has meant it's not been a totally quiet week for the Economist's Wall Street correspondent. Yeah, sleep is for the weak in these moments. <laughs> so... Uh... <laughs> It's pretty safe to say I've been sort of living and breathing Silicon Valley Bank and various other banks that have seemed to be imperiled for the last week or so. So when did you know that something big was going on, Alice? Yeah, so I sort of first noticed that things uh, were going a little wrong at Silicon Valley Bank on a Wednesday evening when I saw the news that they had decided to raise capital. And for a bank boss, you know, doing an emergency or unexpected capital raise is sort of never the position that you want to be in. So that obviously didn't look great. And the share price started to fall on Thursday, but I didn't think much more about it until I read the news that Peter Thiel and other venture capitalists were urging their portfolio companies to pull their cash and sort of saying that they had pulled their cash as well. And that indicated to me that, you know, this really had quite quickly morphed into a full-blown run on this bank. Now, if the bank was solvent, it should be able to sort of handle that run with various emergency support. But, you know, runs, if they are sort of mismanaged, can always be fatal to a bank. And so at that point, I was like, oh, it's very possible this bank is in pretty real trouble. And despite the name, Silicon Valley Bank isn't a typical local bank. Its failure wreaked havoc pretty quickly on a global scale. Why was that? Yes, yeah, so Silicon Valley Bank, it was founded about 40 years ago as a bank for emerging tech companies in the Bay Area. So in that way, it started as a local bank, but actually it had grown enormously quickly, especially over the past three years. And part of that growth had meant that it had expanded into places like the UK and other markets. But its core function still was as a banker to tech companies in the Bay Area. I've actually met Greg Becker, the former boss of Silicon Valley Bank, a few times, and he was sort of bragging that they banked about 50% of startups in Silicon Valley and actually closer to 70% of companies that have ever IPO'd out of Silicon Valley. So sort of hugely important to that sort of specific ecosystem. And that was always seen as strength of the bank in many ways because it got in with these companies and their founders very early and then it could do things like their wealth management and it could advise them on capital raising and debt raising in their sort of later life and therefore they had a special exposure to a really dynamic part of the economy and, and that might be quite a good thing for a bank. But that strength in many ways ultimately ended up being a sort of very big weakness for the bank. So Alice, what actually went wrong at the bank? There are two things that went wrong at Silicon Valley Bank. One is with its assets. So that's all the things that a bank owns and expects to get paid back to it. And the other is on its liabilities side with its deposits. So that's the money that it owes to people who have open deposit accounts, parked money with it. 
Now, as we talked about, all of those deposits came from these tech companies. And that meant that actually a lot of its customers had parked more than $250,000 in Silicon Valley Bank. And that's important because the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is the regulator that safeguards deposits in the American banking system, only protects deposits up to $250,000. And it turned out that 93% of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits were uninsured. And that meant that if the bank appeared to be in trouble, what you would get is 93% of its customers going, oh, I might actually face losses on my deposits if I don't pull them out. And that meant that they were very, very exposed to a run. They were relying on extremely sort of flighty and short-term funding. At the same time, while that deposit growth was booming, they hadn't actually managed to do what banks normally do with an influx of cash and an influx of deposits. And make loans. They typically lend to these startup companies. Startups were very flush with cash from the venture capital boom. They weren't really taking out very many loans from Silicon Valley Bank. And so instead, what it did with all this cash was buy an awful lot of treasury bonds and long-dated mortgage-backed securities. And it bought a huge quantity of these bonds, essentially at the peak in their price towards the end of 2021, when interest rates were very, very low. And the next year, 2022, was one of the single worst years for bond prices that we have measured. So you saw a huge fall in the value of all those assets that it had piled into right at the highs. As tech companies started running down that cash they'd accumulated during the boom, it had to sell off a lot of the bonds that it had acquired. Uh, It did so at a loss. That was what precipitated its capital raising and things unraveled very, very quickly from there. So I guess that's why we saw the US government step in there pretty quickly. Yeah, so the government intervention is very interesting because Silicon Valley Bank wasn't supposed to be one of those banks that was considered too big to fail. But we did see the government step in on Sunday night, and they did two main things. One was that they announced that all the depositors in Silicon Valley Bank and a second bank called Signature Bank, which is based in New York, and had also failed over the weekend, that all of those depositors would be made whole. And that is an expansion of the protection that deposit insurance typically offers to depositors. And it's reasonably radical departure from how Depositors have historically been treated in bank failures where there were sort of these uninsured deposits. In the past, typically, those depositors have ended up taking losses. And the government said, we're not going to let that happen this time. The second action was a new emergency lending facility from the Federal Reserve. And the way this new emergency lending facility worked is that The Fed said that if banks had any high quality bonds like treasuries or mortgage backed securities, they could pledge those bonds to this facility. And in return, they could receive a cash advance worth the face value or par value in the jargon of that bond. But to get to grips with all of this and to dive deeper into what went wrong at Silicon Valley Bank, I spoke to Peter Conti-Brown, who's the Associate Professor of Financial Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Hello, Peter Conti-Brown. Welcome to Money Talks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So over the weekend on Sunday evening, the government made two interventions in America's financial system. The first was guaranteeing that all the depositors, even uninsured ones, would have access to their money on Monday morning. Could you explain how that intervention worked and what the impact of that was? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which was created in the aftermath of the Great Depression, 
has within it the ability to guarantee the deposits of those who use American banks. What it also has explicitly, and this is written by Congress, is a limit on those guarantees. What the FDIC, Fed, and Treasury did on Sunday was override that limit. Now, that's not illegal. There's an exception written into the statute. There are two, actually. And that is if a bank imposes a systemic risk to our overall banking and financial system, overall economy, then we can override those limits, which are currently at $250,000 per account. And that's what the FDIC and Treasury and Fed did in close consultation with President Biden. And what that means in practice is that although some prudent, wealthy bank customers who have more than $250,000 would spread those among banks or use other kinds of ways to manage their wealth, many did not. Those who did not practice those more prudent financial risk management strategies, it didn't end up mattering. They were made whole anyway. Right. And the second intervention was a new lending facility at the Federal Reserve. Could you just explain a bit about how that lending facility works and how it compares to the sort of existing lending tools that the Fed has? It's one of the most remarkable things the Fed has ever done, including in 2008 or in 2020. The Fed broke the glass on its emergency lending authorities once again. So this is an authority that is only supposed to be used in unusual and exigent circumstances. The Fed, with permission of the Treasury, created a new facility for banks to borrow with pledged collateral that would be honored at par value. That's a lot of banking terms. What that means is that there's some assets that banks have, say a mortgage that they loaned out, became an asset to them in 2020. That mortgage had an interest rate of 2%. Well, because interest rates have gone so much higher, that's not a very valuable asset. And so it is trading right now well below its par value. So you might get 95 cents on the dollar or something like that in the market. And the Fed said, we will take that 100 cents on the dollar and we will loan out money to you up to a year. They are valuing collateral, not as the market would do, but with a big subsidy because they're valuing that collateral at face value or par value. And these two interventions, they seem to get at the two problems that felled Silicon Valley Bank. So one is that a lot of its depositors were uninsured and therefore had this incentive to run. As you said, they've been made whole. And the second was that Silicon Valley Bank had these huge, unrealized mark-to-market losses on its portfolio of assets. And they probably were enough to sort of wipe out the bank's capital. And so By doing these things, they've sort of made those depositors, at least at those banks, whole, and also made it such that other banks wouldn't necessarily be felled by taking those sort of mark-to-market losses on those assets. Is that sort of the right way to think about this? There's no suggestion of malice or law-breaking or criminality. It really is that they were behaving like financial boobs. They just did not know how to competently run a bank. You identify the first two, and one is on the liability side. Bank of America has a ratio of uninsured depositors to insured depositors of about two to one, and that's pretty aggressive. And we are looking at 22 to one for that ratio for Silicon Valley Bank. This isn't an accident. This was their deliberate business strategy. They ballooned in their debts. So this is like if one of your friends is a student and all of a sudden starts addressing very nicely and going to fancy restaurants, you know, financing this on credit cards. This is what that kind of looks like. So this wasn't a happenstance. They were aiming at this kind of depositor fragility. 
on the asset side, as you say, now this is not uncommon. It's kind of banking 101 that in an interest rate hike period, you have to maintain positive net interest income. Now, again, that's kind of banking speak. That just means you got to stay a profitable bank. Banks make profits by lending out money at higher interest rates than they pay on money lent to them. And Silicon Valley Bank in 2020 was doing really well with that because they had these long duration bonds at 1.5% and they were paying nothing on the deposits. And then as nearly every other bank in America, beginning in Q1 2022 and well before, started seeing the Fed signaling that we were entering an interest rate hike scenario, those other banks started to diversify on the asset side because you have to sustain that positive net interest income. Silicon Valley Bank did not. And this isn't just a small part of their portfolio, it's more than half of it. Peter Conti-Brown, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Alice, that was a pretty damning assessment of SVB's management. Is Peter being a bit too harsh or is he being fair? I do think it's reasonable to sort of pile in on the management of Silicon Valley Bank a bit, because if you think about compared to the sort of last financial crisis that we had, you know, it was sort of breathtakingly complex. There was this alphabet soup of acronyms that you had to understand and lots of sort of hidden risks had gone wrong at broker dealers. And it was terrifically complex and it sort of came out of nowhere. And I understand why people weren't sort of entirely prepared for it. What Silicon Valley Bank did wrong is the sort of bread and butter of what a bank is. It borrowed extremely short-term funding, that sort of really flighty kind of deposit from a tech company, and piled it all into sort of very long-dated assets. Now, that is what all banks do. They all borrow in the short term to lend in the long. But managing that risk and making sure that you don't expose yourself to this kind of run dynamic is the core function of bank management. And they clearly just completely abdicated that responsibility. So calling them financial boobs, I don't disagree. (laughs) Yeah, that was a fascinating interview. So I've spent a lot of the last week feeling very sorry for the Cypriot depositors that got absolutely hosed in 2013. For those of you who don't remember, it was sort of heading towards the back end of the euro crisis that that followed a few years later after the global financial crisis and the Bank of Cyprus failed. And it was a big deal and the depositors got fairly significant haircuts. And I think there was a sort of understanding that this was a test of the new way that things would work and regulators had sort of stumbled across this rough level where you had a nice balance between not encouraging bank runs with no deposit insurance whatsoever and not encouraging banks to do crazy things and encouraging a lot of moral hazard by saying, hey, don't worry, your deposits are safe regardless. And then the first instance of this happening in the US, really at any scale since the financial crisis, and the whole thing lasts about five days, and then suddenly, effectively, we're back to unlimited deposit insurance. And I think it is an enormous, interesting thing. And it reveals in the same way that the saying about, you know, there's no atheists in a foxhole. There's no deposit insurance hardliners in a banking crisis. (laughs) Yeah, there seems to be a huge gap here between what was planned for and regulated for and talked about for like over a decade and, you know, millions of lines of regulatory text and discussion and planning. And it's all been unwound over the space of a weekend. And we've moved into what is essentially a new reality, which is that 
if your depositors can scream loud enough and everyone is able to panic enough over the course of a few days, then all the deposit insurance rules have gone out the window. And ultimately, that means a huge number of things. It means, you know, we, well, not we, Alice, you as an American taxpayer, you're to some extent in the long term, I will say, you know, the FDIC says that it will bear these costs at the moment. But, you know, ultimately, in the large scale, this puts the public to some degree on the hook for this. If American regulators decide that in future deposit insurance is, is going to be effectively unlimited. Yeah. So I think this is a sea change in the way people treat banks. And it's happened all in the sort of blink of an eye. There are people on holiday who missed this entire thing. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible just how quickly all of this unfolded. I mean, if you look back in time over the course of 2021, Silicon Valley Bank's share price absolutely soared. It doubled over the course of that year, along with the boom in the wider tech sector. And, you know, it started to decline reasonably quickly over the course of 2022 as the wider sector started to experience a rout. But it just collapsed to nothing so quickly and and all because of what really seemed like some fairly basic risk management failures. The other big piece of economic news that we had in Britain this week, which we haven't talked about yet, is the new spring budget. Now, luckily, unlike Liz Truss's mini-budget late last year, this one hasn't blown up the gilt market, which is good because there was certainly enough turmoil happening in markets already this week. I'm looking forward to a deeper read on the budget's impact from our colleagues in the Britain section in this week's paper. What about you, Mike? What are you looking forward to in this week's paper? Well, there's a, uh, a piece in our business section that I've been looking forward to for quite a while on the new look multinational. I, I'm not sure which of our which of our talented <laughs> and handsome business reporters wrote that. But yeah, I am actually really looking forward to reading that. Well, I hope you enjoy it, Mike, because a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears went into that one. To read all of the pieces that all of our colleagues have put their blood, sweat and tears <laughs> into, you will need to be a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode. After the break, we'll hear from former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers on why the Federal Reserve took the dramatic action it did to protect SVB's customers. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, Alice, before the break, we heard what went wrong at SVB. It invested far too much of its depositors' money into bonds, which fell in value as interest rates rose. And when people and firms whose money it was realized that was happening, they rushed to get their money out. But it seems to have taken the Federal Reserve by surprise just how big the impact was. 
Yes, it definitely did. And both the Fed and the Treasury took some pretty huge action. As Mike has beaten the drum about, the sort of expansion of deposit insurance was pretty radical. But also the emergency lending facility is a sort of pretty radical departure from how central banks have operated as the sort of lender of last resort in a crisis in the past. So to understand why these radical interventions were necessary and why the government took the action it did, I spoke to Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. Larry Summers, welcome to Money Talks. Glad to be with you. So ahead of the weekend, you warned that there might be severe consequences if depositors in Silicon Valley Bank weren't made whole, if the uninsured depositors weren't able to access their money. One of the sort of parables of post-crisis financial regulation was that there were these certain banks that we deemed too big to fail. They were called GSIBs, globally systemically important banks, and they faced extra scrutiny and greater supervision. Silicon Valley Bank wasn't one of those banks thought too big to fail. So why could we not just let it fail? I think there were two sets of considerations that, for me, militated against simply letting the bank fail. The first is that it would have had substantial and I think very serious consequences for the Silicon Valley ecosystem in the near term. There were large numbers of companies that processed payroll through that bank. There were investors. And I think for all of that money to have been frozen, would have been substantially disruptive and preoccupying to an important segment of our economy. The second reason is contagion. The judgment seemed increasingly clear as the weekend went on that the gestalt change in the way regional banks were viewed associated with what happened at Silicon Valley was having consequences for a very considerable larger group of institutions. And were those institutions all to come under similar pressure with the accelerants that we have seen this time around, the accelerants associated with Twitter, the accelerants associated with digital account opening that mean that if you get in trouble, you can take money out and put it in a new place very quickly. All of that suggested to me that there was very substantial vulnerability in the whole system. On this contagion risk, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank might pose. Could you talk a little bit about how unique you think the problems were that Silicon Valley Bank was facing? Because the idea that its failure might spill over onto other banks suggests that people were fearful that similar risks were being taken across the banking system. Is that something you're worried about? Look, I think we have learned an important lesson about 21st century contagion from this episode. Silicon Valley was the 16th largest bank in the United States with less than 1% of our total banking assets. It had a quite idiosyncratic and unique business model, and it had made particularly egregious errors in one particular sphere of banking, namely the management of the asset liability duration mismatch. So 
one might, I agree, have supposed that if there was failure without contagion, Silicon Valley would be a good candidate for failure without contagion. Unfortunately, the pretty clear and overwhelming evidence of the orders for withdrawal being placed over the weekend at some variety of regional institutions taught that with current institutions, there was, in fact, substantial contagion. The points of contagion seem to correlate with points of vulnerability for Silicon Valley Bank. Substantial holding either in AFS or HTM, available for sale or hold to maturity, portfolios of long-duration securities being carried at values that did not reflect their current value, therefore inflating apparent capital. Substantial reliance on uninsured rather than insured deposits, those attributes were predictive of where the contagion was most likely to go. You didn't see, at least to my knowledge so far, oil and gas banks being caught up in this contagion. So over the weekend, you got, I guess, a two-pronged intervention. One was the specific intervention the Treasury made, along with the Fed and the FDIC, to give depositors in Silicon Valley Bank and another bank access, even if they were uninsured, to their deposits on Monday morning. And the other one was a new lending facility from the Fed. Do you think those interventions have done enough to halt this contagion, this potential banking crisis in its tracks? I think the general strategy was right, and I think the broad tactics were appropriate. First, you had to make sure that people were going to be able to get access to their deposits in the failed banks by Monday morning. Otherwise, people would become hugely alarmed elsewhere that they might not be able to meet their payroll if they were caught in a problematic situation and you'd have high contagion. So guaranteeing all the depositors in the failed institution was, I think, right. The second stage in the action was doing something about the contagion. I think the judgment was reached that simply guaranteeing the deposits for people at SVB was not going to be sufficient to reassure every investor in every bank that was coming into question. And so I think it was necessary to signal that it was the clear intent of the authorities to support universal depositors except in extraordinary situations. And so the approach that was taken was one that relied on the provision of liquidity in quite extraordinary ways so as to give what it was hoped would be sufficient confidence in regional institutions. If you think about it, it's quite extraordinary 
to loan money well in excess of collateral. And so the important sentence in the release was that they would loan up to the par value of securities, even though in many cases the par value of securities that were held was perhaps 20% or more in excess of their market value. And of course, there are also banks with loans where it's not clear what the actual value of the collateral was. So they were trying to strike a balance between putting up a formidable force for reassurance and ignoring and completely taking away concern about those who had invested better versus those who had invested worse. So on this point of lending, as you've said, to all of these banks at values well above what the collateral is worth, it does strike me as extraordinarily generous. It's essentially saying that banks that took on a lot of interest rate risk on otherwise safe assets like treasuries and agency-backed mortgage debt, they no longer face the consequences of that risk-taking, at least not for a year, which is the current term of this facility. Why shouldn't we worry about the sort of moral hazard or the consequence of the message that that is sending? So first, we should worry about the consequences of the moral hazard, but life is about choices and policy makers have to weigh the adverse consequences of different choices and choose the least bad one. Second, just to be slightly precise, it's not that people who have bought a bond for a hundred find their bond worth 80 and get a loan for 100 are going to be able to pay back the loan simply by providing the bond. That loan is with full recourse to all of the assets of the bank and all of their shareholders, all of their bondholders. So yes, it is a generous loan that's being provided but I think it is important to recognize that it's not that they're getting to sell at an artificial price. Third, I guess I would make the point that I would hope that in the context of this, you would see a set of actions that would look at these questions of fair value accounting for securities and would change what I regard as some quite egregious loopholes in the reporting regimes that enable banks to have losses and still deem themselves to have substantial capital. It's a very technical subject because the claim that the banks will make is that when their assets lose value, they have an offsetting gain because their deposits, which are stuck in the bank for a long period of time, become more valuable when interest rates go up. But I think that that equation and that matching needs to be reviewed much more carefully than it currently is. 
Larry Summers, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thank you, Alice. So, Tom, Mike, what did you take from this whole sorry saga? Larry made an interesting point there about contagion in the 21st century. Of course, we had Twitter and Reddit and the likes around the time of the financial crisis when much of the current banking regulation regime was created. But I think it's fair to say that they played a far smaller part in driving the behavior of financial actors. And I think we've seen now that actually the world has changed a lot. And even a bank that accounts for less than 1% of the system's assets is large enough to cause serious contagion. Now, I suppose we can debate whether Silicon Valley Bank was an exception because of its centrality to the very prominent and visible tech sector, but it will be really interesting to see how regulators now revisit their assumptions about where to draw the line around a bank being too big to fail. Yeah, this week has made me think a lot about duration risk, just being the the risk of an asset falling in price as a result of a, a change in interest rates effectively. And we only really talk about this when either interest rates are incredibly ludicrously low or when they shoot up and never at any point in between those two scenarios. You know, we talk about credit risk all the time. We talk about every other form of risk. But I think we think of these long maturity, especially safe government bonds where you know there's no credit risk, essentially, or very minimal credit risk. And you forget all about the fact that, yeah, these long duration bonds can collapse in price pretty rapidly. And it also reminds me of questions around collateral as well, which is something that, again, we just don't talk about very much. But it's basically the sort of sinews on which the entire global banking system works, whether that's bonds or or real estates or the repo market or whatever. This stuff sort of down in the very depths is what really matters. And you don't see it until it's really in the process of sort of blowing up. Alice, I'm curious, Tom noted that there have been contagion, but not really between financial institutions or certainly not in the way that we've seen previously. Is that a sign that we've sort of learned something about how we should be dealing with a banking crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think what you haven't seen is that sort of cascading domino effect where one bank goes under and everyone worries about other banks' exposures to that bank and then all of those other banks start to be in trouble as well. What happened instead is just the contagion of, well, there was a run on one bank, so are there going to be runs on others? And that's a sign that we've sort of at least learned one lesson from 2008, which is that maybe it's not the best idea to have all of these banks with massive exposure to each other, because then when one of them goes out, they all go out and you sort of can't get away from that systemic risk. Having said that, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank has proven that systemic risk is more nuanced than we thought, because Silicon Valley Bank, it is just 1% of the banking assets of the United States. It wasn't too big to fail in that respect if you'd had to sort of resolve that institution. The problem was if you had let the depositors take the haircut or, or not get paid back in full, maybe you would see runs on banks of a similar size. And as I mentioned there not being runs on all of the banks was the sort of the single most important thing to safeguard against. So we've learned how to deal with some kinds of system-wide risk, but we've revealed other ones. And in that way, sort of one of the lessons that I think a lot of us learned from 2008 still holds true, which is that 
whatever risks you're paying attention to in financial systems, they are never the ones that come back to bite you. You know, we were all worried about, oh, you know, what what sort of weird credit risks have private equity been taking? Or what about all these non-banks? And everyone forgot to look at the sort of basics of how banks work and wonder whether that might expose them to some risks. So, uh, I'll endeavour to uh, keep our listeners informed of any risks that I spy in the banking system, but I make no promises that they'll be the ones that you should actually be worried about. Tom, what have you been seeing? Well, yes, the ripples have certainly been felt here across the Atlantic. So SVB had quite a substantial British operation, again, kind of focused on the tech sector here. And that was put into insolvency over the weekend as well before being scooped up by HSBC for the princely sum of one pound. Down on the continent, it's also been a a pretty chaotic week for banking. Credit Suisse has just been given a $54 billion lifeline from the Swiss Central Bank. Now, its troubles have been brewing for some time now, but the fact that it all came to a head this week really added to the sense of turmoil in markets. It's strange to have been in a place this week where there is actually not that much market stress, to be honest. Across Asia, there is not actually an enormous amount going on, definitely relative to what's been going on in the US and in Europe. There are some pockets of sort of interest. There are places in, particularly in East Asia, where duration risk is a really, really big deal. So you look at some of the Japanese financial institutions and Taiwanese insurance companies, they've loaded up very aggressively over the years on foreign long-term bonds, a lot of those American or European bonds, and they're nursing similar sort of unrealized losses. Obviously, it's slightly different when you're an insurance company because whereas a bank is sort of borrowing short and lending long in exactly the way that Alice described, an insurer is borrowing long that the policies that essentially fund it are incredibly long term. Um, But there are risks there in terms of those institutions changing their buying and selling behavior. So that's quite an interesting element. And with that, I think we should pivot to our statistics of the week. Uh, Tom, why don't you go first? Happy to. And my statistic is going to take us away from the world of financial markets to the world of hard commodities. And my stat is 60%, which is the share of the world's lithium, which is processed by China. Lithium is a critical ingredient in the batteries that are used in electric cars, as are nickel and cobalt, which China also has a very high share of the processing of. And that's been causing some anxiety for a while now in the European Union around the dependence that creates on China. And the European Union has just announced a plan to try and reduce some of that dependence over time. So my statistic of the week is 102.5% which is the rate of inflation in Argentina. Data just released for February. You may think it's a sort of day ending in Y, so Argentina has an absurdly high inflation rate. But this, even by Argentinian standards, is very, very high. It's the highest rate since the 1990s crisis. It's a really big deal, and it looks like Argentina is sort of heading back into a a hyperinflationary episode So if you've been complaining about the price of things going up this year, understandable, but uh, some people have it a lot worse. Yeah, it makes 6% look not bad. You know, eggs might be expensive, but I'll deal with that rather than 100% inflation. 
I'm going to use my stat of week to slip in another bit of financial crisis chat, which is uh, cheating, I guess. But my stat is 3.3 billion Swiss francs, which is the value of the debt that Credit Suisse has said that it's planning to buy back using its sort of enormous loan from the Swiss National Bank. And this is a sort of brilliant piece of financial engineering because for a day or two, everyone thought that Credit Suisse sort of might be on the skids and quickly spiralling into bankruptcy. And it used that pressure to get this sort of enormous loan from the Swiss National Bank. And it's used that to buy up bonds that were trading at 80% below their face value. So it owed these sort of creditors $100 and now it's paying them all back 20 in effect. And that will help bolster their capital position and sort of make it such that there is now no reason to think that they will go bankrupt. And, uh, you know, it's easy to give Credit Suisse a bit of a kicking. It seems to have been involved in a lot of sort of uh, financial mishaps over the years. But uh, that is a really brilliant piece of financial engineering and uh, good on them. See, it's a great news story, but the Swiss franc is too strong for this to be a good stat. We need something to happen in a country like Japan, like Taiwan, where everything ends with a series of zeros. It needs to be something <laughs> trillion. Yeah, how much debt did Credit Suisse buy back in Argentinian pesos? There you go. That's the perfect, question. Perfect. <laughs> with that, I want to thank Josh Chapman, Maria Incha Orang, Peter Conti Brown, and Larry Summers. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. <laughs> <laughs>